Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I hope you have had a good, blessed Tuesday and are ready to stay tuned for the next 90 minutes as we answer your questions from a biblical worldview using the Bible. As usual, sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. And Good evening, Brother Nathan. And let me say a very good evening to those who are listening to the program this evening. Thank you so much for giving us some time to be in your home. Before we jump into our topic this evening... We have a number of questions that we did not get to last week and a question that has come in already for this week's episode. Pastor Murphy, I know this question comes from Montserrat. I know that Israel is a chosen people brought out of Egypt. Can you explain why there was so much killing and destruction of the nations as they moved to the promised land? Are those stories really true? Well, if you take the Bible seriously and you accept the Bible as God's word, infallible, inerrant, uh, and authoritative, uh, you cannot uh, but accept the fact that both of your statements are correct. Israel is God's chosen nation, uh, the earthly people, and the reason for that choice is given in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to 8 and also Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 39. So it's a given that Israel is God's chosen people and they still have a a role to play in the end times. The other question is to, if if this is true, um, was the destruction of the Canaanites and the surrounding nations, did it really happen? Was it really historical? And um, the answer to that question is is true as, as well. And there's a reason for it. When you go to scriptures, and we've dealt with this before, but it's worth mentioning again. If you go to Genesis chapter thirty, chapter 15, verse 13 to 16, you'll find it prior to Israel's invasion of, of Canaan and taking over possession of Canaan, which God had promised to Israel. Uh, the Lord mentioned that Israel would be in bondage for 400 years in Egypt. And the reason why they are to remain in bondage for 400 years in Egypt is given because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, God has given the Canaanite nations uh, 400 years uh, to change, to repent, uh, to reform. Uh, But clearly after 400 years, the iniquity had reached up to heaven and it was time for God to excise the cancer, the moral cancer that was there. And so those nations were were utterly destroyed and Israel was given clear instructions uh, to destroy them. What is also fascinating... is that when you read uh, Leviticus chapter 20 and then Deuteronomy chapter 12, when God has given instructions to Israel as to how not to live and how not to behave, 
when he begins to list the problems that he is trying to curtail uh, Israel from also following, he talks about such things as incest, uh, idolatry, uh, homosexuality, bestiality, uh, child sacrifice. And the reason why he's instructing them, he says to them, the reason why I'm telling you these things is that I don't want you to do this thing because the nations that were there before you these were exa- exactly the moral practices uh, that they were engaged in. In addition to that, uh, there was all kinds of uh, idolatry that God warned Israel about. So it was not um, the reason why God gave instruction for the obliteration of these people. They were given enough time to repent, to change, to reform. They did not respond. The iniquity had reached up to heaven, and God had declared that they would be wiped out. And he doesn't want the nation Israel, which he's starting with, to be contaminated, to fall into these same old sinful immoral habits, and to get involved in all kinds of idolatry. Therefore, to protect the nation and preserve Israel in the way of holiness, uh, to deter uh, that nation from following in the same footsteps as those nations that were conquered, uh, God gave a directive that they would be uh, completely destroyed. Uh, And by the way, if you think that is harsh, I would suggest that you read Romans chapter 19, where Paul lists 19 different sins. And Paul says, who knowing that those who do these things are worthy of death, not only uh, do them, but take pleasure in them that do them. And by the way, some of the sins that were mentioned that are worthy of death would shock you. I would recommend you look at Romans chapter 1 and read that final chapter, part of the chapter, and see those 19 sins that Paul says are worthy of death. The reason why God has not dealt with us with the same kind of level of severity is because we are not living in the age of grace and mercy, and we're not living under the, the law. Uh, so God has restrained his severity, but it doesn't mean that, w- that we're living, that we're less um, evil or less uh, guilty before God. It's just that he's now dealing with us in grace, and if we repent and turn away from our sins, uh, he shows mercy and pardon. But also remember that there's a future day coming the book of Revelations, that by the time God is finished with planet Earth, two-thirds of the world's population will be wiped out. So if you think that was severe in the book of Canaan, uh, you haven't seen anything yet. And remember that every one of us deserve death and destruction because we are sinners before God and we are self-willed and rebellious, and uh, He is going to hold us accountable because God is an absolutely holy God. So, um, yes, Israel is God's chosen people, and yes, uh, those nations were earmarked for destruction basically because of the moral and spiritual sins. The next question comes in from Antigua via WhatsApp. Good night. I have a question. This is uh, from a couple of weeks ago when we were re-airing a broadcast from during the, the peak of COVID protocol and COVID restrictions. If churches aren't being restricted from physically meeting by the government, why is the church still refusing to not meet on Sunday evenings or Wednesday night? Isn't that violating what God intends for the church? Can that also make the believer become spiritually weak and also disheartened, supposing that they are also having their personal studies and growing on their own? Look, there's there's no question that by the time this whole COVID um, experience is over, the local church is going to be suffering and I think it's already suffering, but I think it's going to be even worse as time goes on if this thing is prolonged. Um, let me make a few comments. The first thing I'd like to say, uh, let's talk about the Sunday night service for just a moment. Uh, most churches, 
uh, including Baptist services, are very poorly attended. Uh, I'm not too sure if people have decided that they're Sunday morning Christians only, but that seemed to be the mindset, generally speaking. So even before COVID, that was a service that was not very well attended. You might say the cream of the crop, the persons that attended, those that were on the fringe, uh, hardly ever attended the service. So that was a problem even before COVID started. Um, what COVID did is that it gave a period of time when people no longer was going to church, both on Sunday morning and then Sunday night, uh, because and then it was re- it was lifted on Sunday morning and then it was a curfew on Sunday night and that affected the Sunday night service. So even though the Sunday morning service started, uh, the Sunday night service was still curtailed. <coughs> Meanwhile, <coughs> what has happened um, is that a lot of persons who were going to church found. <coughs> the electronic church to be more attractive than even a local church. And the truth of the matter is that most local churches cannot compete on the professional level of the type of service that you find in these uh, electronic churches uh, in terms of the music, in terms of the quality of the broadcasts, uh, even in terms of sometimes the quality of the preaching. Uh, the whole service, ambience of the service, I don't think that uh, if you compare those services with the local churches, and the, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it, it really became an attraction, and the people were able to solve their conscience by saying, well, at least I'm still attending church in the sense that I'm part of the, the, the universal church. Uh, and I think that they were able to convince themselves that once they were listening to a church service, therefore they didn't need a local church. So I think that that has been very, very hurtful uh, to the local church. Now, in regards to, to Wednesday, um, again, Wednesday nights are normally, well, for us it's Thursday, but generally the Wednesday night prayer meeting, again, is another service that was not very well attended by most churches. Uh, but the faithful are the ones that you always found coming. Um, if you found half the church there any time, uh, it was much, you will almost sing the Hallelujah Chorus. But the truth of the matter is that even the Wednesday prayer meeting and the Bible study, that too was not very uh, frequently attended. and well, Not frequently, not very well attended. Um, I don't see any reason why that should, should be um, suffering at this point in time. Um, I think that Prayer is the great essential for any ministry. In fact, our Lord pointed out his house should be called a house of prayer. And I think that that aspect of it is something that the church should really never surrender. So I am not too sure why any church at this juncture should not be having their prayer meeting and their Bible study. Uh, I think that is quite inexcusable. And I think that um, church members should really confront the pastors uh, about reestablishing the the prayer meeting and the Bible study. So I think that is uh, something that needs to be done. I would like to uh, add as well that um, the Sunday night has been, even for our church, has been a matter for me to be thinking about for quite a while. And um, I do feel that we have to be uh, creative. And uh, I don't believe that the church doors should be shut on Sunday. I was telling somebody this week who came into the office, and we were discussing another matter. And uh, I was saying, can you imagine Christ coming to earth and walking up and down the streets of Antigua and find that every single church door is closed down on Sunday night? Hmm. Uh, you think about that for just a moment. That is the most frightening thought I can conceive. But not only that, 
now here's the church door closed, but what are the people doing that should be in church? Uh, there will be some, no doubt, that will be listening to service, but the vast majority are either relaxing in leisure, doing some kind of entertainment, enjoying their pleasure, uh, the convenience. And, uh, so it, 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 to my mind, um, that bothers me and makes me feel tremendously guilty uh, that I would facilitate uh, that those kind of things happening. Uh, so I think it is something that needs to be looked at very carefully. Um, what we have um, proposed to do, and I met with my youth pastor this week, and we were talking about these things, and we are looking to use our Sunday night um, in four different ways. Uh, we're going to have a beginning in August, uh, we are going to have training session for men, uh, and, uh, and we're going to have a s- training session for w- uh, motherhood, teaching on motherhood, because we have a lot of young ladies in our church, I think maybe four or five or six of them, who have young children and now need to know how to bring up those children. So we're going to do something for training men and uh, motherhood, and we're going to do um, a series of lectures on counseling, the fundamentals of counseling, and giving the techniques of how to counsel to help uh, with our counseling ministry. And the fourth thing that we are going to be looking at very seriously, but we have to meet with the other pastors, is to do the institute uh, on Sunday night. Like two Sunday nights would be for the institute, and uh, one night, uh, the the night for... uh, men's training and motherhood that'll be one going on for ladies at the same time men is going on so we got one other Sunday and that is probably going to be in the process of doing evangelism training and evangelism we will of course this will change uh, because as you complete these different training courses um, you will have to add different ones to according to the need of the church but uh, I think this is something that we are uh, pretty much settled what we're going to try to do in our church and I think other pastors should seriously think this thing through. Um, I don't think it helps the church one bit that we don't have church on Sunday nights. Um, it, we don't need less church in a day of apostasy and a day of uncertainty and confusion. We need more church. And I think that this could be something that we utilize um, One of the reasons why we're looking at the Institute, the Bible Institute, which we had in our uh, Kitty for a long time is because uh, people were saying, well, you know, I would like to come, but I don't have time to to, to um, be involved in, in, in the Institute, Bible Institute. Well, Sunday night uh, clearly would create that opportunity, and there's no excuse now because normally you would be in church on Sunday night. So that really helps to absolve the, the problem uh, that was there, claiming that uh, people didn't have time and and it wasn't appropriate, et cetera, et cetera. I think that helps eliminate that excuse that's being used. So to to answer your question and to repeat what I've said, um, I do feel that it's a mistake of churches um, to not have the Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study. And certainly uh, churches need to revisit this matter of uh, closing down the Sunday night service and not utilizing it for the best interests of the church and the ministry, I think they need to be creative in different ways. I'm not too sure that the night service can return to the normal way it used to be, just a preacher night service. But I do feel that uh, it, it, it can serve for training sessions and dealing with different issues and preparing God's people for the work of the ministry. So that's my thinking on it, and um, I hope that it somewhere helps uh, pastors who might be listening uh, to be thinking on this matter and trying to come up with uh, creative ways of addressing this matter. But the answer is not more leisure. 
It's not more convenience. Uh, it's not more entertainment. Certainly, uh, that only compounds the problem, and it, it makes us less spiritual and less uh, pursuit of holiness. And I, I therefore, I'm, I'm against that, that, that basic kind of trend. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, a live interactive call-in program. If you'd like to call and ask your question live on the air, the number is one 462-7420. If you'd rather not speak live on the air, but you still have a question, we would love for you to WhatsApp or text it to the following number, one 262 And if you would like to join us on Facebook, you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment on your device right there while you're watching the program, listening to the program. You can send in your questions. Yeah, I wanted to add something to the uh, question that was asked. I think they were asking that if doing these things is a violation of of God's Word um, and uh, something about if it affects these the uh, spirituality of people, etc., etc. I would like to say this. Um, if you study the uh, church, um, church history, you'll find that the early believers met daily uh, for breaking of bread in the temple and, and uh, for fellowship and for the Apostles' Creed. Now, we can't do that because we've got other work functions. If you study church history in the second century, they met early in the morning before dawn uh, and that happened as a result of the fear that uh, they were being persecuted. They did not meet at night, but they met early in, in that's in the second and third century. Uh, I, I'm not too sure when the practice of having a service morning and evening began, uh, but that's a tradition that we were brought up under. So while the Bible tells us not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, it doesn't tell you the frequency in which you should meet and assemble together. I was telling somebody again this week that the electronic church um, uh, really is going to destroy the the local church because people are content to be part of the electronic church, but they don't understand the vital role of meeting together and coming together as, as the Bible. It's not just about <laughs> uh, Christianity; it's just about you and God. Uh, Christianity is within a soul. Uh, love one an- one another. Sorry, love one another, encourage one another, uh, instruct one another. Uh, if you were to go through the concordance, you'll see there were seven or eight times that we told that we to do certain things to one another, and that can only be done in the context where we socialize and interact with each other. Uh, I-, I needed to say that because there's no frequency in terms of how often you should meet at a church. So you can't say that because somebody doesn't do it in Sunday night, therefore they're out of God's will, whatever it is. We've got to be very, very careful that we don't uh, come to conclusions that the Bible doesn't allow. But at the same time, where there are very good traditions and something that's conducive to godliness and to helping God's people and reducing the level of leisure and entertainment and, and convenience that people have become trained to, to, to enjoy, uh, I think that that is a good thing if we can utilize it in a better way. Thank you to the individuals who have sent in questions <coughs> thus far. Our next question comes from Antigua. Good day, gentlemen. Matthew 2.23 reads, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. 
Pastor, which prophets spoke this in the Old Testament, and what are the reference verses for this prophecy? Well, first of all, um, Matthew didn't give any, uh, didn't mention a, any particular prophet uh, said this. He said the prophets, plural. So clearly, this has to be some kind of a prophecy that was a general prophecy that uh, the prophet spoke about. Uh, I've gotten uh, two good answers in my judgment, which are the two best I've been able to to to, um, to investigate uh, to come up with an answer to this question, and it, it comes from Norman Geisel's book on when skeptics ask. A uh, very 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 good book and, and dealing with Bible problems and Bible questions that create problems. Uh, the first thing that he suggested um, is that the word Nazareth itself comes from the word Netzer, which means branch. And when you go to the prophetic writings, there are many of the prophets that prophesied that Christ would be the branch that would come. For example, Isaiah 11.1 1 talks about the branch, which is the Messiah who's going to come. Jeremiah 33.15, uh, maybe you can look at one or two of these, Nathan. Uh, look at Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 15. Jeremiah 33, verse 15 says the following. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. There's a prophecy about the uh, one on the Davidic line. Of course, Christ, according to the flesh, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, is the Messiah in the flesh. And remember that in in uh, Second Samuel chapter 7, David was promised that one would sit on his throne forever of his seed. Uh, and here, this one is called a branch who is going to rule on the throne of David in, in righteousness. That's the Messiah. Anytime you go into the prophetic books and you read about a branch who is going to come, that's the, the term that is used for the Messiah. Also, if you look at uh, maybe, look at Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. Zechariah. I think it's verse 8, yeah. Oh, look at six, uh, Zechariah 6.12. Um, Zechariah 6.12. Zechariah 6.12 says, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of this place, out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Again, um, you're talking about the Messiah, uh, who's going to rebuild the, the temple, basically, when he when he returns. And then uh, Isaiah 11.1, 1, let me just give you the Isaiah 11.1, 1, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, and Zechariah 3.8. All of those verses uh, mean, comes from the, 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 the word netzar, meaning branch that the the idea that the prophets of prophesying the branch was indicating uh, that he would come from Nazareth. Basically, that's what he's saying, because it comes from the same word. The second suggestion he makes, which I think is also a very good, uh, good uh, um, explanation for the word calling him, uh, should be called a Nazarene, is that Nazareth was a city where Jesus uh, was a, a very despised city, uh, a, a city that was um, treated with scorn and contempt. We, we know that because remember when Nathaniel, uh, Philip told Nathaniel, found the Messiah, what Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? 
So the idea is that the prophets foresold that Christ would be one that would be rejected and one that would be despised. And uh, Nazareth was equivalent to a, a place that was despised and rejected. And the idea that he is going to be the one that is going to be despised and rejected, um, that concept uh, falls in line with the idea that he would be Nazarene, which is a city that was known for being uh, treated with contempt and scorn and despised. And Isaiah chapter 53, verse uh, 3, talks about our Lord being rejected. Psalm chapter 22, verse 7 and 8. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 12. All of these speak about he being despised and being rejected, which would, which would, uh, it's like us saying that uh, the word ghetto. The, the idea that people come from the ghetto, basically, uh, generally speaking, there are certain places, even in Antigua, in Barbados as well, that when you mention certain names, it's almost treated with contempt, that anybody good could never come out of that place. And uh, I think this is where it's believed that the general idea that Christ would be despised, the general idea that he would be rejected, the general idea that he would be the branch that would come, um, uh, he seems to believe that this teaching and the different prophetic writings about this was indicative of the fact that he would come from Nazareth, a despised place. But there's no specific Bible verse or prophetic word that says directly that he would be uh, a Nazarene. Uh, it's just a general uh, prophetic teaching about being despised and being rejected and being the branch. Uh, that's why uh, Matthew says that the prophets, not a prophet, the prophets, it's a general sentiment expressed about the Messiah when he comes, that he be the branch and he be the one that's despised and rejected, uh, just like people uh, in Nazareth where he lived and where he dwelt. That was a great question. Thank you for sending it in. And very interesting, eye-opening response and answer. WhatsApp question from Antigua. Pastor, we know that Christ intercedes on behalf of believers and that the Holy Spirit indwells in every child of God. Does this mean that all angels and demons know who are saved and who aren't? And does it also mean that the devil only accuses God's children and not the ones who claim his name falsely? Thank you in advance for your answer. Well, you made two interesting questions, and I would assert and endorse uh, the fact that you said that Christ intercedes for believers. We know that Hebrews chapter 4 speaks about that. We know that the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. John chapter 16 explains that. But then you have this jump and this transition where you go from two divine persons to deal with created beings, uh, demons and angels. Demons being fallen angels that were part of the conspiracy when Satan fell, and of course angels being those that remain loyal to God. Um, the question, of course, that you add to this is uh, the same way that and if the Christ and the Holy Spirit knows every believer and sees for every believer, uh, does these do the angels uh, know believers and do the demons know believers as well? Well, there's no scripture that directly answers that question. However, uh, there are things that we learn in scripture that can lead to the understanding that possibly that is true. For example, in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, can you read that? Hebrews 1.14 says, 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Let's talk about the angels, that they're ministering spirit who will administer those who are heirs of salvation. So it would seem to me that when a person is saved, that part of that saving process, we may not understand the mystery behind it, but there are angelic uh, invisible forces involved in this great spiritual warfare. And they are there to minister to the help and the aid of believers. So I would think that those angelic beings would know who the believers are that they're ministering to, okay? The other thing that uh, is a little bit fascinating as well is that when you go to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 19, I don't know if you could turn there for just a moment. Yep, what verse? Uh, look at 11 to 16. Acts nineteen eleven to 16 reads as follows. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjourn you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons, one Shiva, a Jew, and chief of the priest, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? Verse 16, And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. How far did you want me to go? Yeah, that's good. Uh, the point I'm making here is that clearly from what I pointed out before, if we use sanctified imagination and use scripture, it would seem that the angelic, the angels would know the believers because they're ministering to the believers. But what is fascinating here, <coughs> in this occasion, is here <laughs> the Apostle Paul ministering, and uh, while he's ministering at Ephesus, um, he comes into contact with certain persons, and Paul does some healing. And then you've got the seven sons of Sceva, who are the sons of the, the chief priests, who decide they're going to get on this act. If Paul can do it, we can do it too. And therefore, they try to heal this particular person who was demonized to castle the demon, exercise demons. And they got the surprise of the light. They got the worst beating they'd ever gotten. And what fascinating is that the, the, the evil spirit said these words, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? So it would seem that these fallen angels, not only aware of Jesus, but also aware of who are the real saints and who are the false uh, professed people, because these are the sons of a priest. Yeah. And you would think that they are in the kingdom, but you discover that these sons uh, are not part of the true believers. So it would seem that not only the real angels know who the believers are, but we see that even these demonic spirits who are attacking believers are aware of who's a genuine believer and who's a false believer. Now, remember, this is all pure speculation, and uh, our knowledge is limited, so we must not get into an absolute debate on this matter. But it would seem as though uh, the angels know the believers, and the demonic forces who war against the believers are also where who the true authentic believer, as well as those who are not. 
What about the second part of the question? Does it mean that the devil only accuses God's children and not the ones who claim his name falsely? Well, that's what the Bible says in the book of uh, Revelations. He's accused of the brethren. That's the true, authentic brethren. Why would he accuse the non-believer before God? Because it's only the true believer who's a child of God. And, of course, the reason why he would do that, you can see why he would do that, is trying to bring disrepute and disparage the believer. He's like, he looks down here and he sees me or he sees Nathan, he sees somebody else, and the believer's out of God's will doing something contrary to Scripture. Clearly, he can taunt the Lord about, that's your child down there, that's how he's supposed, how he's living. We can imagine uh, taking delight out of bringing pain to God uh, indirectly as a result of his child not living up to the standards that God has. But he has no basis to accuse the unbeliever because he's not a child of God. Here's a question that has come in from a listener. Pastor, I'm aware of a young person who went to summer camp and made a decision to stop listening to country music because it was not wholesome and Christ-honoring. The same young person went home and told their Christian parents about their decision. Their parents said, that's okay for you, but when you're in my car and in my home, I will still listen to country music. My question to you, Pastor, is what should happen in a situation where a parent and a child's conscience are on different levels? Should a child's decision be able to affect a parent's life? Well, I think there should always be some interaction between parents and children. I think children should influence parents and parents should influence, depending on the age level, of course. Uh, From this, um, I'm not too sure how old the person is. But I think, I'm not too sure if the person is saved and then the parents are not saved. Now, that's a different story altogether. Are we dealing with saved parents? Are we dealing with, uh, I would find it difficult. I think they re- they reference that the parents are Christians. Yeah, well, I would find that totally surprising that uh, a parent would respond in such a harsh way uh, to his child. Um, I, and I, 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 I would, if I was a parent and my child had that level of conviction, even though I didn't have it, I would respect their conviction. I wouldn't deliberately play um, the kind of music in the car because I'm the parent. Um, you know, so I, I just I just feel that um, children should be able to influence parents and parents influence children. But I would say to the, the young person as well, you're under the authority of a parent and you still got to respect that authority. And it, there may be a time when you can sit down with your mom and your dad and uh, say, Dad, can I have a chance to chat with you? And, um, you know, just have a very, look, I, I, I know you're my dad, I know you're my mom, I want to respect you, but I, I want to tell you this, that you really hurt me, and you really offended me when you did, when you told me what you did. I don't have all the reasoning to explain to you why I feel this way, but I, I do hit, wish that you would reconsider the matter, and at least come up to some kind of a compromise, that when I'm in the vehicle, would you consider at least just not doing it or whatever. I think any reasonable parent, if a child comes with that kind of humble approach, uh, should be able uh, at least to get the parent to try to to, to work with them in this matter. Um, but Christian parents should be able to deal with the children and, and the children deal with the parents in that kind of a way without feel unnecessary offense because I don't think this is a, such a big thing that it needs to be a big um, battle going on between the two of them in that regard. Look, I know people who have different tastes for music, okay? Um and it's a, a problem even for me. I don't like certain types of music. I just can't even stand. I, where I'm living right now, uh, 
uh, I am being blasted on mornings early, 7 o'clock, before you can even, uh, I, I normally go see about 2 o'clock, so you can imagine 7 o'clock, and it's blasting. And I mean, it is some of the most vulgar music that you will ever hear. I don't know why the government doesn't ban, I know censorship is a, an issue, that, uh, but I do feel that some of this music is so vulgar, uh, that it, it just is so demeaning of women as well that I, I find it in virtually impossible that anybody can be playing that kind of music so publicly and uh, nothing is done to, to deal with it. Uh, but not only that, there are other different styles of music that is not... My, my kids have a different taste of music than me. I am not... I am more of the old school. Uh, they're a little bit more modern. Uh, and sometimes, even in my car, when they turn on my car, they've got on the music they had on before. And it bothers me a little bit. But I don't make it a battle where I'm going to say, well, you got to leave my house or, or something of that nature. Uh, I just want them to respect the fact that, you know, I don't appreciate that type of music and be watchful how you use it. Uh, and I think parents ought to be able to do that with their kids as well. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at org. You can also join us for this program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then you can comment right there on your device as you listen to the program and watch behind the scenes. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7 minutes after 8 p.m. We still have just shy of an hour left in this episode, so you've got plenty of time to go ahead and encourage a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor to tune into That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and to ask their questions. Pastor Murphy, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, good evening, Pastor Hi, Murphy. Good evening, Mr. Williams. Pl- pleasure hearing you again. How are you, sir? Not too bad on you. Enjoy your calling. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, by, by, by the way, Sunday, Sunday will be my anniversary. One year since oh. I married. Oh, man. Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> okay. Uh, Hope the wife gives some TLC tonight, then. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I have two questions. Sure. Saturday last week, I had witnessing by the bedside and come up across a guy that was telling me about our tithe and offering. Uh-huh. Tell me how the tithe and offering supposed to be the Levites are supposed to give tithe and offering. No other tribe supposed to give. Uh-huh. I tell you where he get that from. Uh-huh. I explained to him Malachi three verse seven. He still insists that I he, he not supposed to give tithe and offering. That is for Levites. Uh-huh. Even Christ himself not supposed to give tithe and offering. Uh-huh. But tell me well, I, get, I get back to him and I say I recall that station and then listen to it. Yeah. So what do you want to know? If, if what you're talking about the tithe and offering about the Levites that only to give tithe. Well, the, the, the tithe, by the way, is pre, uh, pre-law. Uh, if you check out even before the law was given, 400 years before the law, uh, it was given to uh, when um, Abraham delivered Lot. Uh, remember that uh, a tithe was given uh, on that occasion. So it's not something that is law, basically. It's something that predates law. Um, the other fact is that in the New Testament, our Lord indicated, you know, that, um, that um, I forgot which particular passage, but 
um, they talk about tithing, mint, and all this kind of thing. The Lord said, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's something even weighty than that. So he seemed to have endorsed the idea of giving uh, the tithe as well. Um, all I would say to you is that I think this is a very personal matter uh, as far as pe- pe- persons need to be um, in, in terms of the decision. Um, I think if tithing was under the law, uh, I, I think that we should be a little bit more generous than under the law. But again, there's no biblical verse that deals with that. The Bible says, let every man lay aside as God has given to him liberally and to do it cheerfully. Uh, so I think that that is a decision that has to be made with the individuals. Um, so I, I don't get into too many debates on these matters. As a matter of fact, I will tell you as a pastor, I, I pretty much don't really deal a lot with on this kind of thing because it happens that when you begin to deal with it, the, the Sunday that that happens, some stranger who haven't visited the church comes in, and all they go away saying, all the pastors talk about money. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm very, very conscious about that, to be very honest with you. But in our church, I, I've never had to... Uh, I found a church that was well taught, uh, both not in terms of just giving to the church, but also missions. Mm. So I have never had a problem in our church in terms of pushing these things, because I think the pastor, the previous pastor, did a wonderful job in that aspect. Uh, but I think God's people should give to the Lord, and uh, it's between them and God in, in these matters. So I don't, I don't get in that in that aspect between the individual and God in regards to, to giving in those matters. Okay. What's the other thing? That was it. Um, that was the other. That's the only question he had. Another. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the decision with Naomi uh-huh. and Ruth and uh, the daughter-in-law. Uh-huh. When she had lived in Moab and went back to Bethlehem. Right. Uh, it was the right decision when you tell them that go back to the parents and hmm, you believe that was the right decision for her to, be, to, her to make him go back to Moab and knowing that what would Moab stand for with the false god and thing? Well, uh, I can't remember all the details there, but I think they went back to Jerusalem from when they departed and went into Moab. They went back to Jerusalem, and that's where they met with um, met Boaz, and that's when Boaz would redeem them. You think about that, the other daughter-in-law, I think her name was Orpah, uh, even though she was married to um, um, Naomi's uh, other, other, other son, uh, she did not go back, but Ruth stuck with her mother-in-law, and uh, her mother-in-law's God became her God. So it was a blessing in disguise that she returned uh, with uh, Naomi to, to to Israel, and she benefited from that decision. Where eventually she became, uh, I think, the great grandmother of uh, Jesse, uh, or I forgot Jesse or David, but the Davidic line came through Ruth being married to Boaz. Yeah. So she is in the lineage of the Messiah, but that's a result of making a decision of going back to Jerusalem. Uh, again, remember that they left Jerusalem because of a famine. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. that that might have been a premature decision. They left yeah, the, the yeah. house of bread and they went into the place of famine. And sometimes God has to create adversity to bring us back to the place where we should be. And that could be a situation where the life of the two son-in-law were taken, and that pretty much forced her to go back to the place of blessing, the place of bread, Bethlehem, uh, where God's blessing was. And Ruth had the discernment to go back with her mother-in-law and the Lord opened a door uh, of blessing to her where she felt found out that she was in the line of David. Remember that uh, Ruth was a Moabite. Yeah. 
Yes, I know. Right. And remember that the Moabites, uh, a, if you check up, there's a verse of scripture which said that they were excluded from the, the people of God, I think, unto the third or fourth generation. Uh, so really, in truth and fact, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a real blessing that she was brought into in, in grace, as it were, and uh, shared in the uh, blessing of being part of God's people. Her faith and uh, in Jehovah uh, and God used her in, in that, that that way. It's just like uh, Rahab, the Canaanite. Remember her? She also is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Remember, she was a, a Gentile. Yeah. Uh, God has his ways of blessing people when they come into his will and follow his people. Okay. All right. Okay, then. Happy birthday, man. God bless you. Yes, good to hear from you and have a blessed anniversary. Yeah. God continue to bless your marriage. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 814. Pastor, that's all the questions we have that have come in so far. But if you have a question that you would like to send in, you can call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. The the phone line is open and available. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. We're now going to delve into our topic for this evening. It's a topic of corporal punishment, a topic that has been on the forefront of many discussions, all the way from private homes to the realm of politics to the setting of schools, especially here in Antigua over the last month or so. There has been some truth stated out there. There's been a whole lot of confusion out there. And some people are quoting the Bible, and others are misquoting the Bible on this topic to try and prove their point. We're here to talk about what the Bible has to say about this topic. So, Pastor, I want to start out with what is your response to the recent push to end corporal punishment in the school and the home? Well, as I uh, think I hinted in a previous broadcast when it very hurriedly, uh, I think the government is overreacting. I think it's a premature decision. I think it's rash, and I also think it's very ludicrous to suggest that you end corporal punishment both in the school and in the home. Um, <coughs> you know, that's like saying that we're going to stop using cars in Antigua because we found that two cars are not functioning well or something. I mean, it, it boils down to that. It's that ridiculous. It's like saying we're not going to eat meat anymore because two people choke on meat. <laughs> you know, so we're not going to have any meat anymore. Or... <laughs> The statistical uh, f- uh, is a statistical farce when you look at the two students out of fifteen to twenty thousand students uh, that two uh, teachers um, committed some kind of a, an offence. Uh, and if you take the two students out of the fifteen to seventeen thousand students, it is 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 point zero zero one one percent of the students. Yet you are <laughs> you're going to penalize now the entire school system <laughs> as a result of just point zero one one students uh, having some kind of discomfort or some kind of uh, mark uh, as a result of corporal punishment. So it's a thoughtless gra- draconian method uh, decree, as it were, that the government is making. Hello. Pastor, we have a caller that would like to speak to you. Go ahead and thank you for calling. That's Truth. Hello, good evening. Good evening, sir. I am calling on behalf of Pastor Murphy's family. Okay. He doesn't like a lot of attention, but I just wanted to wish him happy birthday on the air, seeing as today is his birthday. I wonder who is this person? 
Look, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, they, uh, we don't have a, uh, a tradition of taking special note of these things, but I'm, thank you for your thoughts. I really appreciate that. It's your son, by the way. Which one? <laughs> John? I'll leave you to guess. Okay. We're going to leave us in suspense. We I, I did pick up the accent. We appreciate you calling. Thank you very much, and thank you for bringing that to our attention. Happy birthday, Pastor. We are very thankful for the way that the Lord has been using you and for another year that he has blessed you with, and we pray that he continues to use you for many years to come. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'll tell everybody, when you get into your 60s, you appreciate every single day you live. Um, I don't think I enter the shower one morning that I don't ask my question. one question, is it today? Uh, is that real? Because you become very, very conscious of your mortality when you cross that 60 threshold. And uh, it makes you th- look at life more sober. And it, it takes a, a, a completely different aspect on life. So uh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Back to our topic of uh, corporal punishment. Let me interrupt just one quick time. We got a question from Anguilla, Pastor. Good evening, gentlemen. Pastor, can you please explain Psalm 8? Is it talking about the Son of God or us humans? Uh, I will, let's see, Psalm 8 is nine verses. Uh, if you'd like, I can read uh, through. If I can answer the question immediately, I will do. Let me just see if I can okay. respond to it. Psalm 8 reads as follows. To the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the (coughs) earth." Uh, is he referring to the verse 4? I'm assuming verse 4 through maybe verse 6. Yeah, I, I, in this case, it's clearly referring to the uh, Son of Man, referring to a human being, uh, man and the Son of Man. So, it's, But again, if you go to the book of the, uh, Hebrews, uh, this passage is applied to Christ as well, uh, that everything is put under his, under, his, uh, under his foot, basically under his feet. So this is also a part of a messianic psalm. Okay. Uh, but but in this particular context, remember that uh, in a lot of these psalms, David is, is speaking to himself, and then he veers off, and it comes off to something uh, that is messianic. Sometimes you don't even know where the messianic blends in with the actual event, and that, that is part of the Bible prophecy. But in this passage here, the Son of Man is referring basically to um, the son of a human being. Thank you for the individual from Anguilla who <coughs> sent in that question. Uh, Back to our topic of corporal punishment, your uh, initial response, Pastor, to the discussion of possibly banning it in school. Yeah, yeah, I was just saying that I think it's a draconian uh, decree that the government wants to make as a result of two children, uh, you know, being stung or 
you know blemish by by the, I just think that is really an extreme uh, position to hold. Uh, at first, we thought that was the purported reason that was given that these two children got wounded. Now we're learning through other means that the government at some previous time signed on to some protocol from the United Nations that part of the agreement is that you will phase out uh, corporal punishment in the schools. Now, we didn't even know that this is the real reason, basically. And I suspect that this must be part of some um, UNESCO uh, policy. And I would not be uh, at all surprised if they're not linking some kind of educational aid to the doing away of corporal punishment in the school. So it's far more involved now that we're learning. We just thought it's these two kids that are causing the government to do that. Now we're learning that they signed on to some protocol before that required the phasing out of, of corporal punishment in the school. Um, I just think that the suggestion to end corporal punishment, in my judgment, is a breach of basic common sense. Uh, I think that the whole argument against corporal punishment uh, is based on um, psychological hypotheses that it is going to somehow damage the child and it's going to make him more violent as a result of uh, being experiencing uh, corporal punishment. Any person living in the Caribbean who is uh, my generation, I can't speak for the present generation, will tell you that that is pure bunk. It is pure foolishness. All of us, as I have said on the previous program, we have had discipline, some very stern discipline. That discipline, and I talk corporal punishment now, made us better persons, uh, shaped our character, and in many, many cases, uh, made us learn, and uh, we are pretty much the product of that kind of, of uh, discipline, etc. So to suggest that it scarred us, it didn't scar me, it made me a better person. To suggest that it made me more violent, it didn't make me more violent, it restrained my violence, to be very honest with you. So I think that common sense is, is, is what is needed at this point in time. And I think we've got to look at the folly of making the suggestion that we can just not only do it away, do away with corporate in the school, but not to even talk about telling parents that they can't uh, discipline themselves with corporal punishment. I think that's the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. I said this before and I will say it again. There's not any government, any place on planet Earth that can prevent me as a parent from exercising the proper discipline when I corporal discipline on my kids I'm prepared to pay the price if it's required but I can't see any government that could stop me from disciplining my child my child was given to me by God it's my responsibility to do it and God told me to use the rod to deal with his foolishness and I must obey God rather than man and therefore I, I see this as a challenge to the role of parents, and I see it as a challenge to biblical authority. It's a very serious, it might seem simple to people who don't take the Bible seriously, but if we do away with this now, what do we do about teaching religion in the school? Uh, if there's something we believe in, and we believe that God has mandated this, and God has given us a right to do it, and then we, 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 we just throw it out. What other Bible principles, and uh, what if the child was asked the same question that, that is being asked, is, is, is uh, should mommy use the rod, as God said, what do we do now? Do we reinterpret the Bible to fall in line with the cultural thinking of our times? Or, and then if we tell them what the Bible really teaches, and they ask us the question, well, why don't we do what the Bible teaches? What do we tell them? 
It might seem simple, but it's a very serious matter, and it's something that we need to challenge as believers and Christians, and especially the Christian school. Um, look, I would like to say that a lot of what we are being taught today is based on false psychology. Okay, Modern psychology is based on a bogus anthropology about what, what they believe about man. They've completely looking at it from a pure evolutionary point of view that man is just a higher animal. He's not a special creature made in the image of God. Uh, they don't uh, give any weight to being a, a body, soul, and spirit. Man is totally material. All of that is where all of this psychological junk that we get today has begun to infiltrate us in our universities, in our schools, and uh, sad to say, is now into our churches, and it's being accepted without looking at it from a biblical perspective. That's how the enemy comes in. He comes in very subtly, using some scientific terms, and we buy into it because it is claimed to be science. But it is bogus science if it contradicts uh, biblical anthropology, and that's exactly what it does uh, from Scripture. So, uh, the, the, the other thing I would like to say... Uh, that this is an experiment that has been tried in America and they're now reaping the results of it. In the 1960s and the 1950s and, 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 and 60s, uh, there's a guy called Dr. Sprock, um, Benjamin Sprock, who was able to persuade the American people that corporal punishment would be detrimental to the development of the child and would uh, twist his personality. So therefore, <laughs> he was able to persuade them to put away the rod, don't deal with the rod. The generation we have today in America that is creating all this chaos is the byproduct of that kind of psychology that people bought into. Is this what we want for our, our Caribbean people? Uh, because that's exactly the same type of generation we're going to produce. We better wise up and go back to the basic fundamentals of common sense and basic Bible principles and not buy into this hogwash of the psychology of our times. Uh, and, and so I am a kind of person that really don't have much sympathy for it. Um, what I think that people need to understand that today we already got a lot of indiscipline out there in the world in the school and there's the decline of discipline even in the public school that's why Antiguan seem to be very persuaded that the value of the private schools it's one of the most unique phenomena I find in the Caribbean when it comes to the, uh, the education of Antigua, and they believe that private schools and Christian schools fre frequently do far much better than the public schools and there's no, no mystery about it you know number one we have very strong discipline vis-a-vis -vis what the public school has. Number two, we have a superior curriculum. We not only use the current curriculum the government uses, but we supplement that with the most, uh, use the Becker program, which is a phenomenal uh, Christian curriculum program. Number three, we have uh, more dedicated teachers. A Christian teacher is more dedicated than a non-Christian teacher because he wants to please God and he wants to do his best for his truth. You don't find that kind of dedication really in, in most um, secular uh, schools and, and public schools. And number four, the general school environment is more conducive to learning in the Christian school than it is in the public school. There's confusion, noise, discipline is, is hardly there, and the Christian school is very different. And uh, number five, we do merit-based promotion. We don't promote people because of the age, right? Yeah, you have to pass a certain 
curriculum in order to be uh, to be put up. And then number six, I would say the spiritual and moral emphasis of the school uh, helps to make the entire school environment conducive to learning. Those are the advantages of the private school. And uh, to take away that aspect of, of one aspect discipline, I think, is going to hurt those ministries. Pastor, we have Nathan calling from Nevis. Nathan, thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Yes, good evening. Good evening, sir. Yes, I would like to. I have um, Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 and 10 on, onward. It's been on my mind for quite some time now. Uh, Revelation chapter what? 21, 21 uh-huh. verse 9 and 10 and onward. Okay, let me read those okay. verses. Revelation 21, 9 says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. Verse 10. And he <laughs> carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, <laughs> descending out of heaven from God. So what is your question, Nathan? Who is the bride? Well, in, in, in the case there, the bride is clearly the city of Jerusalem. But there's not only just one bride in the Bible. The church is also called the bride. So um, uh, the, the, uh, clearly in this passage, the bride that is referring to here is the city of Jerusalem coming down, the heavenly city. But that does not uh, in any way uh, contradict other passages that talks about the bride of Christ being the church. Uh, so the the, the two different uh, terms, two different um, entities, but one term is applied to both. It's just like Israel is called God's people in the Old Testament, and they're called saints in the book of Daniel. Uh, you also find that the believer is also called saints, and they're also God's New Testament people. So he had a people under the old dispensation. He has a people in the new dispensation. One is, has earthly promises. One has heavenly promises. But there's no contradiction, and the two uh, will eventually be blended into one. So I, I don't dispute with you that there is referring to uh, the city of Jerusalem. Does that surprise you? No, it doesn't uh, it should surprise me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we, I enjoy your calling, uh, Nathan. You're, you're really a student of the Word. You've seen a person that reads the Word. And uh, there are not many people that do that these days. But you seem to be a person who's an avid reader of the Bible. And I'm, I'm so glad that sometimes I can answer your questions. Uh, I'll do my best always to try to answer the questions as honestly as I can. And if I can't answer a question immediately, I will investigate it and give you a different, re- give you a proper response at some other time. But thank you so much for calling. God bless you. All right. Have a good night. You too, sir. Have a great night in Nevis, and thanks for listening to That's Truth. Encourage, Continue to encourage others to tune into the program also. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.32, and we are discussing, in between your questions, we are discussing the topic of corporal punishment. Pastor, we have a question that has come in from St. Kitts. Good night, Brother Nathan. I'm listening intently. I agree with what Pastor Murphy is saying 100%. Wishing him a happy birthday also. May God continue to spare his life to see many, many more birthdays and to keep him in good health. And I know the listener from St. Kitts is not the only one with that sentiment. Pastor, back to our topic of 
Yeah, Nathan, I want to I quote the, uh, one of the leading psychologists that, that really started pushing this whole thing of why you need to get away with corporal punishment. This it, is in the States. Yeah, th- yeah, his name is Dr. John Valusek. And this is, this is quoting exactly what he says. He says, the way to stop violence in America is to stop spanking children. <laughs> now, have you heard anything more ludicrous than that? <laughs> this is the epitome of what I call verbal inanity, to be very honest with you. It's one of the worst expressions of absurdity I've ever heard in my entire life. But that is the kind of thing that comes out of psychology. It's a, it's a myth. Look, if you really want to stop violence in America, there are several things that you can do very easy. Uh, those people who have committed a lot of violence uh, and, and, and have been, been questioned and serial killers and so on, they attribute a lot of what they did one, to pornography, for example. Mm. That make them violent against women. They lose women. When you're watching pornography, women becomes an object. She's no longer a person. And the more violent you can be, the greater satisfaction. They, they also talk about watching t- violence on television. By the time a child works, which is age 16 in America, from 7 to 16, he has watched 18,000 violent acts of murder on television alone. Now remember that. Think of that impression that's in, in the mind of a child. 18,000 from 7 to 16. And then the other thing, of course, these violent electronic games that are used today. I've seen some of them. Uh, I've had to warn my kids as well. I mean, deliberately driving a vehicle to knock people down. The more blood you see on the screen. I mean, to my mind, this is horrific. It's like... I can see a person becoming so insensitive to blood and to murder, uh, and I, this is—it's like a, a guy who's a butcher who kills animals every day, and uh, killing is like nothing to him. I think it works on the mind of these type of people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then, of course, music. Some of the worst music is some violent music as well. When you have this combination of pornography, violence on television, violent electronic games, uh, this kind of ungodly music, etc., etc., and then you add to that the abuse, use of drugs, where you uh, don't even know what you're doing sometimes. So if you really want to solve the problem of violence in America or any other part, uh, these are the things you begin to attack. Uh, pornography, controlling the games, controlling the ungodly music, etc., etc., and the violence on television. But don't tell me, please, that because you spank me, uh, uh, spanking me can make me more uh, violent, etc., etc. It is just pure copycat, nothing but pure nonsense. But this is the kind of psychological uh, uh, influence that you find that gets into the universities when you're taught, being taught educational psychology and stuff like that. It, 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 look, the fountainhead is wrong. It goes into the universities. The universities bring tr- people come back to our schools here, and uh, I, I remember that every single one of these psychologists are atheists. They're anti-God, anti-Christian, and their whole goal—they believe that religion is the opium of the people, and their goal is to completely wipe out all religion from ev- in- to do anything with education. So I think people need to wise up to understand that this is an atheistic move to do away with all. S- uh, it's an anti-supernatural bias against scripture and against God. And uh, so I see it. I think other people see it as well. The problem is that we have people in government who don't have that kind of perception. And that's the, the kind of folly we end up with trying to push something that they haven't thought this thing through and don't understand where it's coming from and, uh, and, and re- reject it. 
because it's not beneficial to our culture and our society. So I guess the natural outcoming question of what you just said there is, as a citizen of whatever country, as I'm listening to you, Pastor, and my country is, my government is considering banning corporal punishment, what step should I do? What should I do as a believer in order to try and keep some of these Judeo-Christian philosophies ingrained in society? Well, the first thing I think that I would say to people is that this is just one of the beginning. This is just the beginning. There's a lot more coming when it comes to schools. I, I know that very, very seriously. And when I say that is this, uh, the, the, the social curriculum the, and the home curriculum that is coming eventually is going to be a real clash between uh, private schools and Christian schools and government schools because the whole idea about introducing uh, the K-4 right to the primary school to uh, to fall in line with the modern idea that a home is no longer a mother and a father and that if you can have two men, one is a mom and one is a dad, two women, one is a mom and one is a dad, except all that kind of nonsense is coming. It's going to be pushed in the school. <laughs> and this is where the real battle is, is going to be. The question, when we, we, when we give it in one area, what basis do we have then for rejecting the other? Because if the Bible says something we gave in there, what's going to stop us now? What's going to give us a reason for arguing against these kind of things that are coming down the pipeline? Uh, these are things are, that we're going to have to face. There's a tremendous battle going on uh, in the area of morality, in the area of the family, the home, and this simple matter about the corporal punishment. You see, it's not only about the school now they're talking about. Not only the school, but the home. They're telling parents, you can't, uh, you can't whip your child when your child needs a whipping. Now think about the audacity of that for just a moment. This is government infringing on parental rights. And I think there's going to be a heated uh, legal battles and all kinds of battles if these politicians try to get their way and not listen to the people. I would say to parents, uh, talk to their politicians. I would say to parents, get on the radio, talk about it, write about it. Uh, and I would also suggest that the time may very well come where, uh, like in America, you have to back part a party that supports your principles. Uh, you might need some, some kind of a movement in that direction that you try to understand what the politicians are pushing and make sure that the, you know, in other words, we need people to get more active within a democracy. Not the church now. The church job is to preach, to edify. But the individual believer, the individual Christian, has to be salt and light where he is. And if we find that one of the problems happen to be the politics of our time, what stops some believer from understanding that he can get in the political arena? Uh, you know, and I, I'm not for people saying that Christians should not become politicians. I don't buy that. If that were the case, a lot of what has the good that has been done in the past that we don't talk about, whether it be prison reform, hospital reform, um, even dealing with the the lunatics we formed. All of that is a result of Christian and political pressure was brought within the political uh, class people. So I don't uh, buy the idea that we in the Caribbean should not get involved in part because politics is dirty. Think about Daniel and his role uh, and even Joseph. There are times when you go, but I'm not talking about the church now. I'm talking about the individuals because I think the church should never align itself with any political party. But I do believe that Christians need to get involved in politics, need to get involved in PTA meetings, need to get involved in pushing back on these kind of things. We are too silent in the Caribbean. We are too callous. And we are too passive. 
we need to become more active or more vociferous in confronting these matters. That's what I would say. I would say to anybody, when government makes a rule that violates your conscience and goes against God's word, we must obey God rather than man. That is a dictum that we should live with as Christians. Pastor, we have a call here from Antigua. <coughs> Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. I, I want to ask a question. Um, when um, may we say that our generation will be blessed when she visits her cousin? Uh, what's your cousin's name again? Mary? Uh, I mean, Mary, Elizabeth. Yeah, she will visit when she has a baby in C, and she going to visit Elizabeth. Right? And she says, our generation, because she's blessed. What do you think about that? Don't you think about because of the birth of Jesus Christ? Uh, the generation and them will just fall off because of the birth of Jesus Christ. Mr. Coddington, I thank you so much for your call. You know, I am praying for you that you will get as excited about Jesus Christ as you get about Mary. I think if you love Christ as much as you love Mary and talk about Christ as much as you love Mary, I think there'll be a wonderful transformation in your life. Because Amen. I, I really think that you are searching. I really think that you are looking for truth. But I really think because of your upbringing and your background, I think it's a, a kind of a, a mental blockade in, in, in really grasping what this whole thing is about. Listen, no Mary, no man, no pope, no priest, no pastor must ever take the place of Christ. The most important person in your life must be Jesus Christ. And nobody is getting to heaven except the to the door, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary cannot help you. Mary cannot lead you. Mary cannot answer your prayer. The only person that can intercede for you is the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. And the only person who could help you is Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. No saint that has died before and has gone on can even help you down here on planet Earth. The work of the Holy Spirit is to work in the lives of believers. And I hope that someday the scales will be removed from your eyes and you will see that what really is important is Christ and Christ alone. And I hope you really see that, Mr. Coddington, because I really think that you are sincere, and I really think that you're looking for truth, but I really think that you need to get hold of Christ and uh, really make Him the center and purpose of your life. Christ always be the, the head of my life because of his, his um, father, God. His father, God, sent him into this world to be, um, to spoke of him and tell him how good your father is greater than he. And the two of them is one. Yeah, never, so, never have you called into the program Exalting Christ. Everything you, you, you ask about is Mary. Everything's about Mary, Mary, Mary. And I'm telling you, there is, there is no hope for anybody who's depending on Mary to help them. You have to depend solely on Christ and Christ alone, not Christ plus Mary, not Christ plus the church, not Christ plus the pastor, not Christ plus the Pope. It is Christ and Christ alone. Answer my question. Do you answer my question? I ask you, when Mary visit Elizabeth, she said, our generation will be called her blessed. Of course, but of course, there's nothing wrong in saying that she is blessed because she made herself available and humbled herself to be used of God uh, to bring forth her son. So therefore, she's blessed. No question about that. Yeah, because she know when she born the son, this is all, she the one that has a born Jesus Christ. Yeah, she, she was just a... When she born Jesus Christ. She was just a chosen vessel, but she was just a vessel. That's all she was. 
She is not exalted to any heaven. She is no co-redemptrix. There's no something called, there's no assumption. Mary died. Mary is buried. Mary is not any queen in heaven either. She is just a person who was used of God as an instrument. And uh, she's blessed because she made herself available, humble herself, and allow God to use her as a human instrument. But that's all she is, a human instrument. Codrington, thank you very much for your call. We appreciate you listening to That's Truth. Along those lines, Pastor, I heard an audio file this last week from our listeners, or from one of our broadcasters that was talking about uh, the wise men, and they showed up there when Jesus was a very young child. And if at any point there was a time to worship Mary, it would have been then. But he said they didn't worship Mary. Why? Because they were wise men. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never heard that before, but that, that, is, that, that, uh, that falls in line. That's a beautiful illustration uh, right there, quite frankly, that here you've got Christ uh, as a baby and you've got Mary as a fully grown person, the instrument God used. But the wise men didn't come to worship Mary. They came to worship Christ. I think that's a profound illustration, and I think it um, should help Mr. Codrington to get a, get a grasp of who's really the important person here. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 845. We obviously will not have time to discuss in complete depth this topic of corporal punishment. In fact, this discussion this evening is really just to uh, introduce the topic and in future episodes discuss more in depth about discipline in the home and discipline in the school. Pastor, um, how important do you feel that discipline is in the school and in the home? Well, look, um, I don't think there's any dispute uh, when it comes to this matter of whether it's important or not. You cannot have learning uh, taking place at any level without an environment that's conducive to learning. And if you have an indisciplined environment and you don't have children under control, uh, the chances of you being successful in educating the child is very, very remote. So you must have some kind of discipline. And I think that corporal punishment is just one of the tools in the arsenal of, of, the, of, of, uh, of discipline. Uh, we're not suggesting that discipline is always the first recourse you turn to. Uh, that is not what the Bible is about or what we will suggest. But to take it out of the weaponry that can be used uh, by teachers for specific reasons, I think that's a grave mistake. So there's no question that uh, you can't have educational learning uh, at any level without an environment that's conducive to that, and that means they have an environment that is is, is uh, disciplined, an environment where learning can take place. And uh, without that, I don't see how you're ever going to have that kind of situation where learning can take place. I'm sure you'll probably discuss this in much more depth <coughs> in the future, but just very briefly to the point, I think it fits in here. Do people misuse corporal punishment? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't doubt there's any tr- uh, that there's truth to this matter. Um, clearly, um, parents do it sometimes. I think even my mom might have done it. To be very honest with you, because I've been hit with things that I uh, <laughs> would tell you wouldn't believe it. But again, I don't hold it against my mom. I really think that I deserved it, and it was very painful then. But I didn't hate her for it. Even now, I didn't hate her. Then I didn't hate her as well. You know, I might have been upset with that first, but then et cetera, et cetera. But it's quest- no question about that. And and the thing about it as well that. Parents reinforce certain behavior in a child without understanding. Like a child that um, you you tell them to do something or they engage in something, and um, 
they keep crying, and when you try to discipline, they cry more and they scream more. And because they cry more and scream more, what happens? You stop beating. You've just reinforced bad behavior. You, you've told the child that as long as I scream and I misbehave, mommy will stop beating me. So what happens mm-hmm. now is that next time the child does the same thing, this time, though, you can't. It gets you more angry. So what happens when you, when you don't have proper discipline and you just operate on your passion out of anger? You can see quite well. You can take it out of the child because and that's the exasperation that's caused by parenting and not having proper discipline. If you have proper discipline and there's certain things your child will get corporal punishment for, he knows ahead of time, like defiance, rebellion, disrespect. Those are things that are worthy of the rod. But if a child breaks a of glass or spills milk or um, marks up the wall. That's not a basis. That's childishness. So I think that, that you have to define uh, you know, when is a proper time to use corporal punishment. It must not be used recklessly and uh, without any boundaries. But at the same time, because parents abuse it, does that mean that all parents abuse it? What if only 5%? So you're going to Take the ninety-five percent from not from using what has been very helpful, because of five percent, it makes no sense. It is the most ludicrous argument I've ever heard, and I don't think even in the school. So you're going to take away from all the other schools uh, two children out of fifteen thousand or twenty thousand kids. Uh, you're now going to ban it in all the schools. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and it's taken away one of the tools that a teacher can use that is really needed in some time. Take the amount of violence as well, uh, Nathan, or, or, or a, ch- a child throwing a stone or something like that, or some form of gross immorality that takes place in swimming. You just talk to him, pat him on his back and his head and say, you know, don't do that again. There are times when a child needs to be taught and pain is given by God for us to really cause us to uh, respond to change. It's a gift of God. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question coming from the UK or an article. Uh, Methodist Church Conference in the UK has voted on Wednesday, the 30th of June, 2021, to accept same-sex marriage and affirm cohabitation. The Methodist Church in the UK has voted to approve the cohabitation of same-sex marriage. The Methodist Conference taking place this week has voted to allow same-sex weddings on Methodist premises by Methodist ministers and affirm couples who are not married living together. Uh, At the end of the article, the resolution reads, The conference consents, in principle, to the marriage of same-sex couples on Methodist premises throughout the connection and by Methodist ministers. And uh, I think we've got the general idea. Pastor, can you comment on this? Yeah, I would say to you, if I had belonged to the Methodist Church, I had a church in the Methodist Church, I would withdraw my church from the Methodist Church. You are now endorsing gross immorality, perversion, you're going contrary to the biblical norms about the family. How in the world is this church not an apostate church? Who would want to stay in a church like that? And that's why the Bible says, come out from among them and be separate. And there comes a time when the church becomes so ungodly and so apostate away from truth that <coughs> believers must withdraw themselves. And even if they had to form another denomination or another church of the same sort. But I cannot fathom for one moment any true, genuine, authentic Christian staying in a church movement like that. But here's the problem, Nathan. 
a lot of these ministers will be against it, but they'll stay in it because of the cooperative program. Their salaries are linked to it. Their okay. pensions are linked to it. Uh, they're not making decisions based on biblical truth or moral truth in scriptures. It is all about money and finances, and that's where they lose their gratuity. They lose, lose this to withdraw themselves. Uh, and I think that this is a gross error on their part. Uh, scripture is very, very clear. There's a time when you need to separate from your brother. There are times when you need to separate from the church. And I think that this level of uh, endorsement of immorality and perversion uh, tells me that this whole system is apostate. Uh, it should no longer be called a Christian church. And I think the people of God who are truly serious about serving God should move out of that denomination and start a rival Methodist church that is orthodox and evangelical and, 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 and et cetera, et cetera. But to stay in that kind of a situation, to my mind, is unthinkable uh, when the Bible tells you to come out from among them and be separate. Back to our topic of corporal punishment. Pastor, does the Bible approve the use of corporal punishment as a means of discipline? I think uh, anyone that reads the Bible and reads it honestly, forthrightly, without trying to impose the modern uh, cultural way of thinking, can only come to one conclusion. The Bible affirms, the Bible endorses, and the Bible recommends, and the Bible mandates that corporal punishment be used in the home when it comes to dealing with children. Now, the Christian school is an extension of the home and the family. Uh, when parents send their children to the Christian school, they are delegating that uh, responsibility to the, to the Christian school. And it's by that delegation of authority to the Christian school that this Christian school now has a right to also use corporal punishment when it deems mandatory and is needed to deal with the child and to curb his ungodly behavior and uh, to bring him in line uh, so that um, learning can take place. But yes, the Bible is very, very clear on this matter. And uh, anyone that reads the scriptures that comes to any other conclusion is just twisting scripture to suit into the cultural times in which we live. It's a distortion that they have, don't have a good biblical hermeneutics. I heard, for example, Nathan, that's being said that the word rod that is being used has to do with giving uh, verbal direction. <laughs> that's, the, that's the most craziest thing I ever heard. Um, in the programs that will come, we will take that word, we'll examine it, and <coughs> go to the etymology of that word, look at the Hebrew, see what the word means. And, and remember this, that the meaning of a word in a passage is not dependent only on the etymology of the word, it's dependent on the contextual use of the word. Because the word rod that we would look at You'll find that that word rod <clears throat> comes from the word branch or stick or skyon. Uh, that's what it means. The word is shebek, basically. And, but yet, it also can refer to different forms of, of rods. It can refer to a shepherd's rod, as people have said. It can refer to a walking rod, a fighting rod. Uh, it can also be a ruling rod, a scepter, or a writing rod. It can also refer to a punishing rod. So you have to read it in the context to see exactly what the word is used. And when it comes to the book of Proverbs, and it deals with matters of de dealing with children and discipline of children, in the context of that word, what it really means is a rod that is used to chasten. And that means to strike. 
It means to whip. That's what it means. It doesn't mean any idea of... Uh, and we, we'll, we'll come to that at some point in time, maybe in, in the next program, where we'll show you that the use of that word. But there's no question that the Bible endorses corporal punishment. And I cannot think for one moment why any believer uh, could come to any other conclusion. Uh, other than the fact that they've listened to the garbage that is being taught from by these psychologists, and also that they are trying to become more relevant by reinterpreting the Bible to fit in with the culture of our times. They're not prepared to take a stand for biblical truth because it is not popular. And uh, I think it's a grave mistake when we yield uh, to these popular um, movements without truly coming back to what the Bible teaches them and hold to our biblical principles. If you've just tuned in or recently tuned in, we're talking about corporal punishment. We're not going into a whole lot of depth tonight. We just don't have time, even though it's a 90-minute episode. But Lord willing, in our next couple of episodes, we're going to talk more in depth about discipline in the home and discipline in the school and even talking about exactly what the Bible says. I want to use a simple illustration, Nathan, of how people have abused this word rod and and misinterpreted rod. Uh, Take the simple English word can, C-A-N. Uh, that can be used in many different ways. For example, I, 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 I can't do this. Okay. okay. I have a can of juice. Same mm-hmm. word. Okay. Yep. I just can some cherries. Okay. I mean, <laughs> then um, uh, uh, I have a can approach to a matter. Wow. Can, you see, three different, four different four ways, different one ways. word. Yeah. See? So the idea that because it means rod here for shepherd, it means here over here, is the most foolish thing I've ever heard. And everybody knows who has any literary understanding that when it comes to the, a word, it's the context and the use of the word that defines the meaning of that word in the context, not just the etymology of the word itself. And can is a simple example that I thought I could use to just show you and illustrate that in the context, you have to determine what that word means in the context in which it is used. So just to say because it means rod over here with shepherd, it means here when it's coming to deal with, with kids, it shows immaturity and shows a lack of proper method of interpretation. We are just about out of time in tonight's episode. Pastor, I have heard some individuals uh, attempting to connect the dots by saying that because we have been spanking children, they become more violent, and because they become more violent, there is more violence against women in society. Is it? I don't agree with that, and I'm sure you don't agree with that. Is it possible to maybe take the other approach and say because for a couple of generations the secular approach has been don't spank children (laughs) that as a result there is more violence toward women because young men uh, were not ingrained with the importance of controlling that violence I think there are many factors uh, why there's violence against women but it is very very ludicrous to me to say that because you you discipline a child uh, it's going to make him move out because you use corporal punishment that is a myth and I think that is demonstrated practically and experientially in the lives of countless thousands of, of people in the Caribbean I do feel that not giving a child discipline and letting him have his own way has led to more violence. And I think the permissive society of the 60s and the 50s, we're now reaping the whirlwind because we've sown to the wind and because we were so permissive and so um, restri- uh, not having stri- strict rules uh, has led to this kind of state that we're in currently. Thank you for joining us for today's program. 
We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.